0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 1. In the last episode, I wrapped up the Pentateuch with a summary of the narrative, sticking to my promise of making every episode 30 minutes or less. In the case of that episode, beating the self imposed time limit by a mere half second. Truly. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm kicking off the next major section in the Old Testament, a part known as the Deuteronomistic History. As the name gives away, that's a very academic term. How that phrase came about is the first part of this episode. And with that, let's get started. Referring to the next section in the Old Testament as the Deuteronomistic History is a relatively new thing beginning in the 1940s by a German biblical scholar, which should be cause enough for Paul's. It was actually in 1943, to be exact, and I'll let you read into that what you will. German biblical scholar Martin Noth used the phrase to explain, at least in his mind, the origin and purpose of the books of Joshua Judges, along with the pairs of Samuel and Kings. Do note that his theory is a bit controversial. Noth posited that these books were not recorded as events unfolded, but instead were written down later, in the 6th century BC by, possibly, a single writer as an attempt to explain what to them were recent events. Events such as the fall of Jerusalem and the Babylonian exile. Like always, I'll let you form your own opinions. Do know that support for the theory is scant and relies greatly on Moses' telling what would happen later, all during his three speeches in Deuteronomy, along with something else I'll get to in a minute. Noth's overall argument was that both Joshua, along with Moses, were depicted as being too great, with too few flaws, so it couldn't have been a contemporaneous history and had to have been recorded later. Or maybe the author was selective with what was recorded. Like I said, judge for yourself. What is of less dispute is that these next few books record the history of what happened to the Israelites after they entered Canaan. Though, the accuracy of that history has been the subject of debate. But do recall that one of the central premises in this podcast as I stated this in the beginning, in the very first episode, is that I'm working under the assumption that whatever is printed in the text is true. Moving along. I've touched on this concept before, too, and that's that the books of the Old Testament, especially the further back you go, were not written as the events unfolded. And like I've said every time I've mentioned this, the theory isn't mine and I don't even purport to believe it. But you may see it elsewhere, and it's good to know what you may run into. In the case of the books of the Deuteronomic history, the theory is that they were written hundreds of years later, during the rule of King Josiah, who ruled over Judah between 648 and 609 BC. Recall that he enacted many religious reforms, attempting to return the kingdom to monotheism with the worship of God, and God alone. There are other researchers that think the book was then revised about a hundred years later. This would place this version towards the end of the Babylonian captivity, possibly just after it ended. Both sets of researchers rely on how Moses was seemingly able to predict what would occur hundreds of years later, with the intermingling of Canaanite deities in Hebrew worship, and the breaking of the God-given covenant that would lead to the tribe's downfall and being scattered to the winds, to the point of contrasting the so-called sinful northern kingdom of Jeroboam, who erected golden calves to be honored in Bethel and Dan. This place is contrasted against what was considered the more righteous kingdom of Judah, once ruled over by the king after God's own heart, King David. And in the place where Josiah was attempting his reforms. That's enough background about that, though I'll likely touch on it as the need arises as I progress through the next few books. Which gets me to the last note before starting Joshua in earnest. One of the reasons the history of the Pentateuch took so long was that as the opportunity arose, I would follow the history of various people, places, and things forward through time. A more recent and very thorough example of this is how the Bronze Age collapse led to the Sea Peoples, who may have been the Philistines, a history that took ten separate episodes, though they were barely mentioned in the first five books of the Old Testament. What all of that means is that these next few books should progress much quicker. And with that, Let's get to Joshua. The book of Joshua chronicles the story of Israel from just before crossing the Jordan River and after the 40 years of post-Exodus wanderings, then the conquest of Canaan. The narrative tells of the military campaigns of the Israelites in Central, then Southern, then Northern Canaan, how the Israelites destroyed their enemies, how the territory gained was divided between the 11 tribes as Moses had directed, and how the twelfth tribe, Levi, was allotted cities throughout the land. In the book, and in addition to the narrative, are a few speeches following the same writing style that was seen in Deuteronomy. The first speech records God addressing Joshua, giving instruction to the freshly minted leader, telling him what he's to lead the people to do. The second speech is one Joshua gives to the people very reminiscent of the one Moses gave, though in his own voice. Joshua tells the people that they need to faithfully observe the law handed down by God through Moses. As far as the writing of the book goes, Jewish tradition holds that Joshua wrote it himself. But the later theorizers, like I covered a few minutes ago, think differently. They tend to believe that the first few chapters the text through chapter 11, were recorded much earlier than the second half of the book. The first part is the history of the conquest. Chapter 12 is essentially a list of everyone conquered by the Israelites. If any part of this book is going to slow me down, it's going to be that. The second half of the book begins with the sentence, Now, Joshua was old and advanced in years likely indicating that some time had passed after the conquest. Though, one note, when the Israelites crossed the Jordan, Joshua had to be pushing 60 years old, at least. If you assume he was 20 when he became Moses' assistant, and he was at least that old when he went as a spy into Canaan. Then, there were 39 or so more years of wandering, so he was getting up there in years. The second part, at least according to them, was written down sometime between the reign of Josiah, which began in 640 B.C., and the return from the Babylonian exile in 539 B.C. The book begins with God addressing Joshua, and while it's become quite frequent for me to paraphrase the text, I continue to be hesitant about paraphrasing God, like I could make it any better. Though I will leave a few things out, where it gets a bit redundant. What God told Joshua was My servant Moses is dead. Now proceed to cross the Jordan, you and all this people, into the land I am giving to them. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, as I promised Moses. He then gives the rough boundaries of the land, along with mentioning that it included all of the land of the Hittites. No one shall be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail or forsake you. You shall put this people in possession of the land that I swore to their ancestors to give them. Being careful to act in accordance with all of the law that Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it, so that you may be successful wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to act in accordance with all that is written in it. For then you shall make your way prosperous, and then you shall be successful. I hereby command you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I skipped over a couple of different places where God told Joshua to be strong and courageous. All total, three times, making sure Joshua got the point. Just after this, Joshua addresses the people. Prepare your provisions, for in three days you are to cross over the Jordan, to go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God gives you to possess. He then reminds the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh that, though they may already be settled east of the Jordan, that their warriors are expected to cross with the other tribes to seize Canaanite territory. All of the Israelites respond that they will go wherever Joshua sends them. Specifically, they say, all that you have commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you, as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your orders and disobeys your words, whatever you command them, shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. If only that were really true, they could have avoided the 39 years of wandering after the spies returned and they refused to enter Canaan. Speaking of spies, that wasn't the only use of spies in the Old Testament. In Joshua 2, Joshua sends two spies to check out Jericho, a city just over the part of the Jordan River where the Israelites will cross. When they get to the city, they find a confederate in a Canaanite woman named Rahab they go to her house and spend the night. The king of Jericho hears that there may be spies in her house and demands that Rahab divulge the men's presence. But she balks, telling the king that she doesn't know where they are. Then we learn that the walled city has a gate that's closed at night, with Rahab telling the king the men left before the gate was closed. She then takes it a bit further urging the king to have his men chase after them, and if they do, they probably will catch the spies. And the king's men set off after them, but it was getting dark, and as soon as they had left the confines of the city, the sun set and the gate was closed behind them. Of course, the pair of Israelite spies hadn't fled, for if they had, we likely wouldn't have been told what transpired with the king. Rahab had them hide on her roof, under stalks of flax. What this likely indicates is that the roof of her house was flat, and she used it to dry grain. After dark, Rahab went up to the roof and let the men know why the king was so concerned about them. She told them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that dread of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the Amorite kings Sihon and Og. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no courage left in any of us because of you. The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. Since I have dealt kindly with you, Swear to me by the Lord that you in turn will deal kindly with my family, that you will spare my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. The men told her that they would go along as long as she did not betray them. One more note, in that pre-modern communication era, word of the Israelites' conquest may not have traveled fast, but it still got around. Then, even more detail about her house and the city's walls. One of the walls of her house was part of the city's walls, with a window on the house seemingly looking out through the wall. The text tells us that she dropped a rope from that window so the men could climb down and escape the city that night. She then tells them how to escape, going towards the hill country, since the pursuers went in the other direction. They should hide out for three days, allowing the king's men to return to the city. Only after that should they head back to the Israelites' camp. Before the two spies leave, they tell her that when the Israelites invade, she should gather up her entire family and shelter in her house. She should also tie a crimson cord to the window they escaped from, so that all the Israelites know to leave her house and its occupants alone. Then the men left, headed for the hills, where they hid for three days. After that, they returned to their base camp on the other side of the Jordan, reporting to Joshua what they had found and what they had been told. He was pleased the residents of Jericho had heard of them and were afraid. The next day, Joshua leads the Israelites to the banks of the Jordan, where they encamped for three days. They then crossed the river, with the ark leading the way. We're told this happened during the time of the harvest, when the Jordan was overflowing its banks. This flooding usually happens between January and March. Despite the flooding, as the priest carried the ark, dipped their feet in the river, the overflowing waters stopped, with the upstream water backing up as far as the city of Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan giving me a couple of places to cover. The downstream waters, those flowing towards the Arabah and the Dead Sea, were cut off, meaning they continued to flow, and as they did, the riverbed was suddenly empty and dry. The priests proceeded to the middle of the riverbed, standing there as every Israelite passed by, including about 40,000 warriors from the tribes who remained on the east side of the Jordan. The warriors were headed to the plains of Jericho for battle and fulfilling what they had promised Moses when he allotted them their territory. Then God told Joshua to have twelve men, one from each tribe, gather twelve stones from the river, from the dry ground where the priest were standing, and they did. The men then took the stones to the place on the west bank where they were camping that night and set them up there. They were to serve as a reminder that the Israelites, with the intervention of God, crossed the raging Jordan River on dry ground. I covered these stones a couple of episodes ago. Joshua did the same with 12 stones, setting those up in the river. The text tells us the stones, quoting, are there to this day. And I'm pausing here for a second. Those four words, there, to this day, are key, especially if you believe that the book of Joshua wasn't recorded in real time. They do seem to indicate that the book was written sometime after the crossing of the Jordan. What they don't tell us is how long after, unpausing. After everyone had picked and arranged their stones, the priests continued to the other side. As soon as the priest carrying the ark were on the west bank, the waters that had been held back rushed forth and refilled the flooding riverbed. At this point, we're told that the crossing took place on the tenth day of the first month. Today, this is a national holiday in Israel. When the ancient Hebrew calendar is compared to our modern Gregorian one, the dates don't line up exactly. But the crossing would usually fall in March or April, which would be towards the end of the flood season for the river. All of this gets me to Joshua chapter 5. Soon after they crossed, word spread throughout the land about what had happened, to the point that they were very directly told that all of the kings of the Amorites, which lay to the west of the Jordan, and all of the kings of the Canaanites, who lived by the Mediterranean, When they all heard that God had held back the Jordan so the people could cross, they were afraid and disheartened. God then tells Joshua to make knives from flint and to have all of the males circumcised. We're told this had been done in Egypt, but all of those men had died during the wanderings. The Israelites would remain camped on the west bank of the Jordan, near the city of Jericho, until all of the men healed. The place was renamed Gilgal, because this had been done there, with some researchers thinking the name refers to the circumcision, and others to the stones being set up. A few days later, on the 14th of the month, the Israelites celebrated their first Passover in Canaan. On that day, they ate crops from the land, along with unleavened bread and parched grain and because they had finally made it, the manna stopped. Chapter 5 ends with Joshua having a vision. We're told that once, when he was by Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said, Are you one of us, or one of our adversaries? He replied, Neither, but as commander of the army of the Lord. I now have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped, and he said to him, What do you command your servant, my lord? The commander of the army said to Joshua, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. And that's the chapter. Which gets me to Joshua 6 and the Israelites' first major victory in Canaan. The king of Jericho knew the Israelites were approaching, and as we heard before, he was more than a little concerned, having heard of their prior victories and conquest. So, he shut the gate of the city and waited. Then, one of the more told stories of the Israelites' military victories. God tells Joshua he will hand over the city. He just needs to follow some simple instructions. Assemble the troops and make a lap around the city, one per day, for six days. He was actually a little more specific, saying, You shall march around the city, all the warriors circling the city once. Thus you shall do for six days, with seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, the priests blowing the trumpets. When they make a long blast with the ram's horn, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all of the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and all the people shall charge straight ahead. Joshua calls the priest and tells them to get the ark, placing it in front, with the soldiers following. And this time, the Israelites did as they were told. All of this leaves me wondering how far it was around the walls of Jericho. I'll get to that in a future episode. Like I said, the people did as they were commanded and made a single lap a day for six days. They arose on the 7th and were given more detailed instructions. They were told to march around the city seven times and at the 7th time, when the priests blow the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city, and all that is in it, shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, and all who are with her in her house, shall live. The Israelites were told to stay away from all of Jericho's residents' possessions. But for those things made of gold, silver, bronze, and iron, they were to be seized and put into God's treasury meaning into the tabernacle. As soon as they made the circuits, sounded the horns, and shouted, the wall fell. The people charged in, destroying everything in there, every man and woman, including the children, along with all of the livestock, which were said to be the oxen, sheep, and donkeys. Except for Rahab and her family, who were allowed to live with the Israelites. Then they burned the city, leaving nothing standing, and all of the precious metals were taken away, utter destruction, with a curse that followed, laid upon anyone who would try to rebuild the city. The Israelites were off to a good start in Canaan, at least at this point, and note that while they wouldn't occupy Jericho, gaining the territory did allow them to spread out, and also served as a buffer between themselves, and the enemies that were present on every side, the victory also provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue pushing through the book of Joshua. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week Help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.